You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Paul Rakuski, your host, and with me today is Sally Rogers, PhD, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and Director of Training and Mentoring at the Mine Institute, University of California, Davis. Welcome, Dr. Rogers. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. I trained as a developmental psychologist many, many years ago at Ohio State University, focusing on children with developmental delays of all types, um, but very quickly moved into early childhood infancy, really, in my very first job outside of grad school. And I've always had a focus on autism. My interest in autism began when I was 15, reading a Life magazine article about Ivar Lovas's work at UCLA. And I sought out experiences in autism really from undergraduate life forward. And so that's been really the focus of my research and my clinical work and my teaching ever since I finished school, really. So can you talk about some of the concepts that come out of developmental science that are used for the basis of many of today's early intervention programs? Good question, because I think there was a period of time when people didn't really um, know that young children with autism followed any kind of typical developmental pathways. As a matter of fact, the impetus for applied behavior analysis was the idea that children with autism did not learn in typical fashion and needed a very different way to be taught. And much of the research in the 1980s, particularly 80s and 90s, was looking at that question using first a Piagetian framework and then a framework from communication science and cognitive science to ask the question of whether young children with autism were on a different developmental path or learned in similar ways to young children who did not have autism, young children with autism who didn't have any kind of developmental disorder. And it was quite interesting, and it was the basis for that science in that 20-year period, really, that has had so much influence on my particular approach to intervention and that we found that in many, many areas of development, young children with autism, in fact, do follow a trajectory that uh, has similar milestones as typically developing babies and as babies and young children who have other kinds of uh, learning difficulties but not autism. So, for instance, in the way that they develop speech, um, as they start to speak, they show more similarities than differences in the development of their sound system and their words and their ability to put words together. And in their area of uh, learning about objects in the world, about pretend play, they tend to follow the same kinds of landmarks that young children who don't have ASD have. Uh, one of the differences, however, and I think part of what took us a while to understand that was that it is much more difficult for adults, for parents and preschool teachers and caregivers to capture the attention of a young child with autism and to draw them into the kind of imitative exchanges with toys and objects and songs and routines that seems absolutely intuitive for most young children and their caregivers. And that initial hurdle was something that we really needed to understand. What was it? that captured a young child with autism's interest? How do we promote the kind of attention and imitation that serves other children so well to learn how to, to learn from other people? And it's that idea of learning how to learn from others 
that I think has been one of the um, big contributions of developmental science to early autism intervention in the past uh, 10 to 15 years, maybe, that people have been bringing more developmental concepts into the field. So what are the benefits that you're seeing that for targeting early intervention programs on the core symptoms of ASD? That's interesting because I think in my mind there's a little bit of a debate about that. The core symptoms of ASD are social communication difficulties and repetitive behaviors. So many of the early intervention programs focus exactly on that, increasing eye contact, increasing children's turn-taking and their use of gestures and words, and reduction in their stereotyped behaviors, reduction in their repetitive behaviors, and uh, requiring them to be much more responsive to other people. Now, that approach has not resulted in as many changes in the core symptoms as measured by standardized tests as we all might have expected. However, it makes logical sense. If those are the problems that that separate autism from um, other kinds of learning patterns, then maybe that's what we should be tackling. However, it's interesting to me that when you look at outcome studies, what predicts better outcomes in young children when we look at their responses to early intervention, or in studies that begin with young children and follow them all the way up into adulthood, the areas that are most predictive of better versus poorer outcomes are IQ scores and language abilities, expressive language vocabularies and the sophistication of language by age five. And neither IQ nor sophistication of expressive language is a specific symptom of ASD. It's not a core symptom. Uh, I think of both of those as kind of secondary outcomes, perhaps, but particularly around intellectual disorder and intellectual dysfunction. You know, many, many people with ASD do not have that. Many people do. It's not a core symptom of, of autism. So, um, you know, I think in addition to focusing on core symptoms in terms of eye contact, responsivity, attention to other people, to me it's quite important to focus on learning rate, which is how I think of what IQ measures, how quickly a child's learning uh, compared to their peers, and also on the development of expressive speech and language. Now, speech and language grows out of gestures and nonverbal communication, but um, I put a tremendous amount of emphasis on that typical pathway to speech in the work that I do with very young children with ASD. Uh, My colleague and I, Jerry Dawson, have had very good success in developing very strong speech and language skills in a very, very large majority of the children that we've treated in the method that we've developed, the Early Start Denver model, and because it is so predictive of school success, life success, ability to be included in many other kinds of activities, I I think it's quite important to emphasize speech as an outcome. Now, not all children with autism or any other disorder are going to learn to speak, and communication is 
far more important than speech, being able to share your needs, respond to other people, join them in activities and interests, and have some way to represent your thoughts and feelings. But as I said, we have found that the large majority of children, I'm talking about 80 to 90% of the children we've treated in our studies, develop useful communicative speech well before they go to kindergarten. And so for me, that's a very important target. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Paul Rakuski, and I'm speaking with Dr. Sally Rogers. We're talking about early intervention programs for individuals with autism spectrum disorder. So I want to turn our attention to a specific program, the Early Start Denver model. So what was the concept behind that design? Blends together, really fuses together interventions based on developmental science and interventions based on the techniques and approaches of applied behavior analysis. And I think that's probably the most unique feature of that intervention. The second most unique feature is that it starts so early. It's built to be used with toddlers, children as young as 12 months of age, and we've even now carried out some work with infants who are younger than that. Um, The idea is to bring together all of the aspects of early learning and to focus on social learning. Um, following a developmental framework for building skills like language, speech, uh, conceptual cognitive skills, pretend play, play as a main learning vehicle and imitation skills, as well as using the refined teaching practices that applied behavior analysis gives us so that we really think about separating the content of what young children need to learn from the processes by which adults uh, help children learn those skills. And ESDM has found a way to bring together developmental science and applied behavior analysis in a way that is built on children's uh, enjoyment of activities, their pleasure in whatever materials they like, whatever routines they like. It builds on positive interests and um, the importance that positive affect brings to learning. We all learn more rapidly when we are interested in what we're doing, when we like the materials and the format and the people that we're working with. And so we're bringing together kind of these newer parts of infant learning and infant science with the body of knowledge that applied behavior analysis has been generating for its more than 60 years of science. One of the things I think is most important about the model as well is it's also evidence-based. Yes, we've carried out um, many studies now. Let me think. We probably have more than 10 or so controlled studies in the literature, either studies with good control groups or studies that use single subjects designs to carefully look at the causal influence of the intervention on children's learning. It's also a flexible intervention. It can be, it's built to be delivered by anybody, parents, caregivers, tutors, speech pathologists, daycare, or preschool teachers. It can be carried out anywhere, just like learning activities between adults and toddlers are carried out everywhere in all of toddlers' waking hours. We really use that, I, um, that what we know about infant and toddler learning, that infants and toddlers are learning all the time through every exchange that they have and that their, mo- their classrooms are the natural routines of their daily lives. 
that's where they learn the most important things about social learning that are the part of all human beings' repertoires. And so we really wanted to make that kind of learning in every experience possible to open that up for young children with autism and to also open up to their caregivers um, the tools to do that, that this isn't hugely sophisticated therapy skills that can only be delivered by people with PhDs or BCBAs, but that these are tools that parents can use, that caregivers and preschool teachers can use in their everyday exchanges with children. By being able to take these intervention techniques, these interactive techniques, and put them inside diaper changes and meal times and grocery store trips and play on the floor, it really opens up the young child with autism's ability to learn throughout their waking hours, which is what it is needed for a young child to develop the repertoire of skills that they're going to need to go on and advance as children and adults in our culture. So you mentioned there that we can already diagnose at 12 months of age and even a little earlier. I wouldn't say diagnose earlier. It, we do have tools that allow diagnosis for autism at 12 months. But I want to um, emphasize that not all children who have autism have their symptoms that early. Onset of symptoms in autism generally occurs sometime between the first and second birthday, sometimes later, occasionally earlier. We don't have good tools yet for diagnosis before the age of 12 months, and many children who have autism don't have the symptoms set before 12 months. So we have to be ready to think about autism and diagnose at any time in, in the whole infant preschool period or for young children to be looking at difficulties in social learning as perhaps this may be leading into autism, this may not be leading into autism, but we want to help children learn from other people, attend to them at whatever age we're seeing that they have difficulties. Well, thank you, Dr. Rogers. Very much appreciate your time. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to your audience. My thanks again to my guest, Dr. Sally Rogers. We've been discussing autism spectrum disorder. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring podcasts of this and other series. I've been your host, Paul Rakuski, and thank you for listening.